because this uh, principle is contained in the 12 steps of Alcoholic Anonymous that's in the big book, that I'm sober here this morning, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. I really thought this 10 o'clock time slot, somebody, a lot of y'all would stay up late last night and not be here this morning, so I thought I was going to slide by, but it didn't seem to be the case. And, uh, of course, I would tell y'all I'm nervous, but you wouldn't believe that anyway. Before I get going too far, I'd like to thank the committee, and I'd like to thank uh, Jackie that picked me up to the airport yesterday. I had a little trouble getting here yesterday. One of the flights that I was on was canceled, and uh, through cell phones, the invention of cell phones, we were able to talk back and forth to Jackie, and she was there when I, when I did arrive, and everything went fine. I'd like to apologize for my wife not being with me this weekend. <clears throat> Recently, she found out she's got a little diabetic problem, and... Uh, she felt like to travel out here this weekend, she'd get off her routine and uh, she might cause some problems, so she uh, declined to come, but she's here with us in spirit. There's another <clears throat> person here this morning that I'd like to introduce. You know, if you don't know by now, you'll find out as we go along this morning that uh, I played a little pro football, and uh, one of my teammates from, lives now in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, he can, he's out here for the holiday, he and his daughter, and... Uh, He's got 29 years of continuous sobriety in the program of Alcoholic Anonymous. And uh, his name is Paul Rochester. He's right here on the front row. Rocky, stand up. And I appreciate y'all making him as welcome as you made me feel this weekend. You know, it's been a tremendous weekend, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to the rest of the speakers. You know, I know today up here, I really enjoyed Sean last night. I, I had a chance to get here in time to catch him, and it was tremendous. But I know I won't, you know, I can't screw you up too bad because Clancy will be up here tonight and he'll take care of all that. But I'm really pleased to be here. And, uh, you know, I'm a native Mississippian. I probably should have brought an interpreter with me because some of y'all are probably not going to be able to understand a lot of this stuff. But yeah, every time I, uh, every time I go to one of these, Rocky tells me he don't know what I said, so... And he lives in Jacksonville, Florida. That's south, too, you know. But I'm a native Mississippian. And when I got here at Alcoholic Anonymous, I didn't even know what you had to do to be a native Mississippian. And finally, I looked the definition up. Somebody told me the definition of a native Mississippian. To be a native Mississippi is composed of 82 counties. And you've got to got, have gotten drunk in all 82 counties. And I, so I qualified for that. I was born and raised down in a small town in Mississippi, way out in the country, and we didn't have indoor plumbing, and I know that's hard for y'all to believe. We didn't have running water. We had an outhouse out behind the house, and I was ashamed of that. <clears throat> and I have five brothers and sisters. And, uh, you know, when I got sober in Alcoholic Anonymous, I, I tried to figure out why I'm an alcoholic. I guess, you know, we all want to know why we were alcoholics early on. But finally, my sponsor told me that if I needed to know why I'm an alcoholic, there'd be a chapter in the big book called Why We're Alcoholics. And there's not a chapter in the big book, so I don't guess we really need to know why, but I wanted to know why. And I started going back through my childhood and all and uh, trying to figure this thing out. Now, I got three older sisters and two younger brothers. I'm the oldest boy kind of right there in the middle. And uh, I kind of figured it out, you know. Well, we were so poor when I was growing up that I had to wear hand-me-down clothes to school. That's pretty tough when you got three older sisters, you know. But I doubt if that's the reason I'm standing up here in front of y'all this morning either. I started out early in my life, in my childhood, I had a little bit of athletic ability. And I thought the best way for me to get out of the, the uh, environment I was raised in was to uh, work on the athletic ability I had. 
And sure enough, when I graduated from high school, the University of Mississippi came down and offered me a football and a baseball scholarship to go to school. And that's really the only way I could have gone to school other than work my way through, and I wasn't interested in that work. I never have been, probably never will be. But uh, I didn't want to work my way through, so the scholarship was the best answer for me. And uh, I took off the University of Mississippi, which is 200 miles from where I was born and where I lived. And uh, when I got to Ole Miss, I had some primary purposes in my life. You know, the macho man, the man that I wanted to become, the, well, we hear a lot about the John Wayne-isms out here in, 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 in Alcoholic Anonymous now. And I, oh, I heard a story about that the other day. These two little ladies was in the grocery store, and they looked over there, and they had a big pile of new toilet tissue, and they, they had a contest going and said, name this toilet tissue. About a week later, they bought some of it. About a week later, they came back to the store, and a little lady told the manager, said, I, I can name that toilet tissue. He said, well, ma'am, what would you name it? She said, I'd name it uh, John Wayne. I said, John Wayne? Why would you name it John Wayne? She said, because it's rough and tough and don't take crap off of nobody. <laughs> so that macho man thing, you know, that's what I wanted to become. So when I got to the University of Mississippi, 200 miles away from home, uh, I wanted to learn about drinking. Now, this is back in the 50s, and, and Mississippi was a dry state. And growing up, I'd heard about moonshine, and I'd heard about homebrew, but I didn't know anything about alcohol. I didn't know anything about it because it was not available in my home. We were Southern Baptists. We were such uh, staunch Southern Baptists that we prayed for Catholics, you know. <laughs> and so I didn't know anything about drinking. There was no alcohol around my home, no alcoholics in my family. And I got to Ole Miss, I wanted to learn about drinking. So the first time we had any free time, we went from, from uh, Oxford, Mississippi to Memphis, Tennessee, which was about 90 miles. And we stopped at the first liquor store we came to in Memphis, Tennessee. We were going to do some partying over there. We'd heard about some places that played music and, and had some women and uh, dancing and drinking. And that's what we were going to do. And I walked in this liquor store, and I didn't know anything about booze. I didn't know anything about the difference between vodka, beer, or wine, or bourbon, or anything. Total rookie about buying booze. And I had a limited budget. Didn't have much money. And uh, I looked around there, and all at once, my eyes fell on a gallon of Mogan David wine. <clears throat> and it fit in my budget. So I bought that gallon of Mogan David wine, and those days, we went back, I went back out of the car I was in, and we had paper cups. We didn't have the styrofoam cups, and I had paper cups and ice. And I poured that wine over that ice in that paper cup, and I drank it right down. And I'm standing here before you all this morning, I can, re I can remember that sensation that that wine gave me, the first drink of alcohol I ever had in my life. You know, it kind of tingled as it went down, and your, your, your face get a little rosy, and your stomach would start kind of churning and get a little bit feeling good, you know, and your fingers would start tingling a little bit, and your toes would curl up, and, well, it kind of felt like you swallowed an umbrella and it opened up on the inside of you, you know? So I put my keen mathematical mind to work, and I said, if one cup of wine will make me feel that good, two cups of wine will make me feel twice that good, and sometime between that second cup of wine and the end of the evening, all the classic symptoms of alcoholism was present in my life the first time I drank alcohol. I found out when I got to Alcoholic Anonymous 30 years later, I was 17 and a half years old when I took that first drink of wine. I was 47 and a half years old on, uh, on May the 25th, 1986, when I got sober. I found in the big book what it says. It says men and women drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. It doesn't say alcoholics. It says men and women. So that's the first sample. Uh, then I read later in the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous where it said that uh, you read from Chapter 3 this morning. It said uh, alcoholics simply are men and women who's lost the ability to control their drinking. 
And that first time I drank that Mogan David wine, I certainly didn't control any of it. And then I blacked out. Then I got in trouble that night before I got back to school, and then I passed out. Thirty years later, when I had my last drink of alcohol, I was coming up a big street in Memphis, Tennessee, drunk as usual, had been drunk for a period of time, and uh, all the same symptoms of alcoholism was present at that time. I drank for 30 years, and I knew I drank because I liked the effect produced by alcohol. I knew that once I started drinking, I couldn't control how much alcohol I put in my body. And normally I blacked out, and then normally I got in trouble, and then I passed out. But, you know, I didn't come to the next day when I was 17 and a half years old when I was in college and decided I needed to go to Alcoholic Anonymous. I made some decisions that morning, and I'm not real good at decisions, Rocky. You know, I had a decision to make before I came up here this morning about whether I needed to go to the bathroom or not, and looks like now I made the wrong decision again. But I didn't come through that next morning and make a decision about drinking, I, about quitting drinking. I made a decision I could drink. I made a decision I wasn't going to drink any more of that Mogan David wine because that's what, that's what triggered that whole deal. And I went on with my college, you know, and college was fun. As most of you know, that if you went to college, it was a fun time. And four years at Ole Miss, you know, I majored in uh, football and drinking and girls and uh, had a tremendous time. Ole Miss back in those days was a football factory. They really believed in winning football games. And, and uh, the four year, three years I was eligible to play college football, we, uh, we won most of our ball games. And we went to a bowl game at the end of the season for having a good season. Went to the Sugar Bowl twice and the Gator Bowl once. And, and uh, I was very fortunate down there. I made All-American and All-Southeastern Conference. And, and uh, oh, yeah, in, in 1959 and 1960, Ole Miss had back-to-back -back Miss Americas. And I went to school with both of them, and I dated both of them. That ain't got nothing to do with drinking or football. I just want y'all to know that I dated them good-looking women. <laughs> Finally, in 1960, I was graduating from Ole Miss, and uh, my phone started ringing. Now, y'all, a lot of y'all are too young to remember, but TV wasn't what it is today back in them days. Mississippi didn't have a pro football team, and I'd never been to a professional football game in my life. I'd never seen much of it on TV because TV was a bunch of images kind of jumping around and the reception wasn't real good. So I didn't know anything about it. Baltimore called me and said, we got your rights. We drafted you. You know, I did my rights. I was trying to get out of school and go get a job, you know, and make some money. And then New York called me and said, we started a brand new league this year, 1960 American Football League, and we drafted you and we got your rights. So they started talking money, and I got a little bit interested, and they flew some people down to Oxford, Mississippi, and the uh, representative of Baltimore sat down over here, and the representative of the New York Jets sat down over here, and I was in the middle, and they started piling that money up there on the table, and they called it a bonus to sign your name. Well, ain't nobody ever given me no money to sign my name before. And when they kept piling that money up there, it got up to $1,000. I'd never seen $1,000 in one pile in 1960. So I signed my name, and I took off to New York City to play professional football. Oh, Andy Griffith was a guy that played on Mayberry and, and the Sheriff Taylor and all that. But before then, he put out a record. And his record was what it is, is football. And all through the record, he tried to figure out what the object of the game was. And finally, at the end of the game, he figured out, at the end of the record, he figured out that the game was all about going from one end of a cow pasture to the other without either falling down or stepping in something. And that's about what I knew about pro football when I took off to New York to play with the New York uh, Jets. I hadn't had a chance to visit with many of you, but I, and I wish that all of us going to stay, stay, stay sober the rest of our lives, but I don't believe it's going to be that way. The, the odds say that that's not going to happen. 
But if, you, if they don't, and I know they serve it pretty fast and furious out here in Las Vegas, but if they don't serve it the way you want it served, as fast as you want it served, as long as you want it served, you might ought to try New York City. Them people up there understand booze, you know. That concrete jungle up there, they got restaurants, they call them, on each end or right all, all up and down that concrete jungle. And uh, their idea of a menu is something like uh, Slim Jims and crackers and a lot of booze. But for the next 13 years, I pursued a career that uh, I don't have the vocabulary to stand up here behind this uh, speaker stand and describe to y'all. I was a starting right linebacker of the New York Jets for the next 13 years. When you stand underneath the goalpost at Shea Stadium on Sunday afternoon in front of a crowd of 62,500 screaming fans and knowing that you're on TV back home down in Mississippi and your mother and your friends and everybody's watching you and you know, and you get in a cab going down to New York City and they want your autograph and you go into restaurants, they buy you food and booze, you know, it just, uh, it does something for your ego, really is what it does. We rocked along there for a while. If you remember the history of football, the National Football League was established in 1917. American Football League was established in 1960 and they hated each other. Matter of fact, they didn't play games against each other. They drafted the same player out of college and they tried to sign him and the money started getting a lot better. And then they finally tried to get people to jump from one league to another. So there was a constant battle going on between the National Football League and the American Football League. And finally the owners got smart. They got together and they decided they needed to play one game between the National Football League and the American Football League. And somebody coined the phrase Super Bowl. So the first Super Bowls ever played was played in January of 1967. Green Bay Packers won the National Football League. The uh, Kansas City Chiefs won the American Football League. They played in the first Super Bowl. Green Bay beat the hell out of Kansas City. Next year came around, 1968. This time it was the Green Bay Packers again, this time paired against the Oakland Raiders. Super Bowl II, Green Bay beat the hell out of them. So Green Bay and the National Football League were 2-0 in Super Bowls, and they started calling us the Mickey Mouse League, that we couldn't compete, that we weren't as strong as they were, and a lot of other terms they used against uh, the American Football League. And finally, in December of 1968, the New York Jets played the Oakland Raiders for the championship of the American Football League in Shea Stadium in New York and for the right to go to Super Bowl three, We beat the Raiders that day 27 to 23 in a real tough contest. That same day, Baltimore played Cleveland in Cleveland for the championship of the National Football League and for the right to go to Super Bowl three. Baltimore beat Cleveland at their home park 34 to nothing. So Super Bowl three was going to be the New York Jets paired against the Baltimore Colts. And because of the history of the first two Super Bowls and because the National Football League was viewed as being so much stronger and better, the New York Jets were installed as uh, anywhere from 17.5 points to 19-point underdogs in Super Bowl III. Well, I'm sure you all know with our ego, that didn't really mean a lot to us, a point spread. We thought we were going to win the ball game. And matter of fact, our young, illustrious quarterback named Joe Namath got behind a speaker stand such as this down in Florida to be receiving an award on Tuesday night before we were playing the Super Bowl on Sunday. And one of our brethren, one of our drunks back there in the back row, probably hadn't made it to Alcoholic Anonymous yet, stood up and said, oh, Joe, why don't you sit down and shut up? Baltimore's going to kick your butt on Sunday. And right off the top of his head, Joe said, no, 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 partner, you got it wrong. The Jets are going to win the game. I guarantee it. Next morning, we wake up in the headlines of the newspapers and all the TV all across the nation said, Joe Namath guarantees Jet victory. And even though we're 17 and a half point to 19 point underdogs, you know. Well, sure enough, we went out there Sunday afternoon. We beat Baltimore 16 to 7. We became the first American Football League team to ever win a Super Bowl. Changed the history of football because the merger took place a short time later. And things started happening in my life right away. The day after the Super Bowl, we went to, took a, had a, 
went back to New York City, had a ticker tape parade down Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue and open air convertibles and much like the Yankees had not long ago when they won the World Series. And my mind told me it don't get no better than this. I have arrived. I have proved to all those people back down in that little old Mississippi town that I could make something out of my life, that I could be somebody. I have proved to them that the people in New York City know where Crystal Springs, Mississippi is because Larry Grantham plays for the New York Jets. My hometown had a Larry Grantham Day proclaimed by the governor of the state of Mississippi January the 23rd of 1969. We had a little parade around my little small hometown there, and they had a banquet honoring me and my family. And again, my mind told me it don't get no better than this. I have arrived. Well, that was 1969. I kept playing in 1973. After the 1972 season, it became time for me to retire. I'd, I'd played uh, pro football for 13 years and made, made All-Stars seven times, played seven All-Star games, and I retired back to that hometown that I'd grown up in. By then, I'd married a girl, and we'd had two kids, my childhood sweetheart, my high school sweetheart, and we had two kids, had a home, a car, two cars, the whole deal. And all at once, after I got out of football and I went home, my life started going down real fast. And I didn't have anything to hang on to. But you see, it couldn't be the alcohol. I hung out with people that drank the way I drank. I hung out in places they served it the way I wanted it served. And alcohol was my friend. I drank when times were good. I drank when times were bad. I drank at the Super Bowl party. I drank all in times in between. So alcohol did not seem to be, to me, it was not the problem. It was a solution to my problem. My wife of 21 years filed for divorce in that hometown that we'd grown up in and been childhood sweethearts in. And on the divorce petition she put, for the reason she put chronic alcoholism. Well, I'm sure y'all know what my attitude was about that. That old girl wasn't even a college graduate. And besides that, I might be an alcoholic, but I damn sure wasn't chronic. <laughs> About the same time, a lot of things were going on in my life. This was 1980, and my, I'd, uh, in 1974, the state of Mississippi had taken my driver's license and asked me to quit driving on their streets and highways because I was always drunk. And I didn't bother to try to get another driver's license because when you got a Super Bowl ring and all them cops like football, you don't really need a driver's license. They'd stop me, and I'd show them this ring, and we'd talk football for a while, and they'd let me go. But a lot of other things was going on in my life, and I didn't have that driver's license, and I didn't have a job. I couldn't get a job, wouldn't get a job. And everything in my life was going straight downhill. That house I'd paid for while I was playing football was repossessed. Those cars were disappearing. All that money in the bank that I'd had was gone. And I decided to move to Memphis, Tennessee. You know, the book talks about a geographic cure. I'm not sure mine was geographic. I think it was unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. <laughs> But I moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and I got to Memphis, Tennessee, and I figured out real quick they got the dumbest cops of any place I'd ever been in my life. They'd stop me for drinking and driving, you know, and I'd show them that ring, and they said, no, we need to see a driver's license. I'd say, that ain't how it works, you know. But I started going to jail. Now, I'm here to tell you all this morning, if you've only been to jail once or twice, keep on doing what you're doing and keep on going to jail because it gets a lot easier. It got to where I could live in jail. It wasn't no big deal to me. You know, you go in there, and they take you down there, and they take your fingerprints and your, and your picture, and they put you in there with the drunks. That's about where you ought to be. And, you know, I don't know how many DUIs or driving under the influences or charges I had in my life. I wish I'd kept a count because, you know, that we might have a pension plan or something here in Alcoholic Anonymous one of these days. But I didn't keep count, and I went to jail an awful lot. Finally, on May the 25th of 1986, I was coming up one of those, that big street there in Memphis, Tennessee, 
And I was driving one of them drunk cars. I don't know where y'all got them out here or not, but if you didn't have them, I'll describe mine to you. It was about an eight-year-old Buick, and it was a basic blue car. But on one side it had a green fender, and on the other side it had a fender that's about to fall off. You know, it was tied on with bailing wire to keep it from falling off while you drive. Y'all know, it was about a $100 car, and that's the last thing I had to my name. Although when I got to Memphis, I found this girl that I was really attracted to because she had a house and a job and a car and money in the bank, so she had put me up, and finally we got married in 1985. And things were real bad in our life, and uh, I was drinking all the time, and she couldn't understand that. And so, you know, if you think they're going to leave you, best thing you can do is get married, you know. I mean. So I met, we got married in 1985, but on May the 25th of 1986, I was coming up that street, and some idiot up there, four cars in front of me, was trying to make an illegal left turn. I traveled that street a lot, and I knew that that had a lit sign that said no left turn, and he had stopped up there trying to make a left turn. You know, y'all probably don't think that football players are very, very smart, you know, and you probably don't think that, you probably think that when we come out of college, the only thing we can do is go into football, but that's not true. You know, some of us have to decide between going into uh, rocket scientry or, or neurosurgeons or football. Most of us decide on football, but we could go into these other professions. For instance, Old Curly in Berlin was driving home from New York after football season was over with one year. It was Curly's car, and he drove for a while, and he got tired. And they hit the Ohio State line, and he asked Berlin, said, Berlin, you drive. I'm going to get back in the back seat and take a nap. And old Berlin was driving on down there, and finally Curly woke up and said, uh, Berlin, uh, where are we? Berlin said, I damn if I know. He said, well, you're driving, man. I left you with it. We're going into Ohio. Where are we now? And Berlin said, I don't know. So I saw a sign back there that said, Toodly Do. Curly said, Toodly Do? It ain't no such place as that. He got the sleep out of his eyes, jumped up over in the front seat, you know, and he said, man, you done got us lost. And finally looked over there and he saw a sign on the side of the road that said, Toledo, Ohio, <laughs> five miles. So Toodly Do, you know. Uh, so football players could go into rocket science or, or these other things, but normally we pick football. But that idiot up there, four cars in front of me that afternoon, and I was drunk as usual. Had no driver's license as normal for me. And I can't tell you how long I'd been drunk. I just, I was just drunk. I drank till my body couldn't stand it. When I drank, when I had to, I'd, I'd go get sobered up or detoxed or whatever, and then I'd go back to drinking. That's just the way it was. I never could correlate that first drink with that cell door slamming shut behind me after I drank. It wasn't that first drink that got me. To me, it was always those after that, the ones that I should have, should not stay there after that place closed, or I shouldn't have gone and got that last fifth or, or whatever. And, you know, I just drank. I was a basic vodka drinker. I love, <coughs> I love vodka, and uh, I drank a lot of vodka, and I chased it with a lot of beer. And that, that's the way I drank. And I'd take the cap off the vodka bottle and usually throw it away. I didn't need the cap anymore because I just drank. And that was my profession. I didn't... I didn't have a job. I, I, I called myself a manufacturer's representative. I didn't have a damn thing to represent. But uh, I was, had all the mechanics in place. Just in case anybody called me and wanted me to sell some of their products, I was ready. But I didn't make no money. And when you're self-employed, you know, you don't make any money, but the upside of it is you don't get fired. I've never fired myself. And I just rocked along there, and Peggy, my wife, was making a living, and uh, I was drinking until I had that wreck. 
And the cops came at that wreck, and since I was the fifth car in a four-car pileup, I was the rear car, they, uh, they told me that uh, I was responsible, and they wanted to see a driver's license. Well, I flashed them that Super Bowl ring, and they said, no, we're going to have to see a driver's license. And they said, well, we're going to give you this test. And I said, whoop, no, nope, I don't do well on tests. Now, I ain't going to do that. So they carried me down to Shelby County Drunk Tank one more time. That's the local county there in Memphis, Tennessee. And I went down there, and they did what they always did. They took my finger, my, uh, my fingerprints, my picture, and threw me in a drunk tank with the rest of the drunks. Well, sometimes, and I did what I always did. By the end, it wasn't no big deal, as I said before, about going to jail. I'd been there a lot, and uh, I, I got there early enough on Saturday night. It ain't like the Holiday Inn. If they take you down there, they got a place for you. You ain't got to call for reservations. So they threw me in there, and it was early enough. That, uh, they had a concrete seat that went all the way around that drunk tank, and it's about as wide as this table. And I laid down on that concrete seat and passed out. Because that's what you do when you drink as much as the way I drank. You pass out and come to. You can't wake up. You ain't been asleep, so you kind of just pass out and come to. And, and I passed out. Sometime in the early morning hours the next morning on Sunday morning, I came to. And I was really attracted. There's about five or six guys in a circle on the other side of the cell. And I was really attracted to them the minute I woke up. Because, see, they were smoking cigarettes, and I'm a smoker, and I'd run out of cigarettes the night before, so I was really attracted to them. And I decided I better go over and talk to those guys and bum a cigarette. But on the way over, I decided I better tell them how dumb the cops were in Memphis, Tennessee, because they had an ex-National Football League linebacker in jail, and that's not where we normally hang out, you know. And then I was going to finally, after I gave out of things to talk about me, I decided I better ask them about their lives, because they were in jail. Didn't dawn on me that I was in there with them. <laughs> they probably were permanent, and I was going to be temporary, so I could help them get out of jail, you know. I don't know how many of y'all have been in jail lately, but all the people in jail seems to be, give you a lot of advice. They tell you how to beat your case. Can't get themselves out, but they tell you how to get out. <laughs> lawyers. I guess they're all lawyers. I don't know why we lock up so many lawyers in this country. Everybody down there knows the ropes. But I walked over that morning, and I bummed a cigarette from those guys, and I told them all about how dumb the cops were and all who I was and how famous I was. And as soon as they found out who they had in jail, they probably going to turn me loose. Then I had run out of things to talk about about me, and I decided to ask those guys about their lives. And they said, well, you know, we live on the streets of whatever town we happen to be in. We just happen to be in Memphis, Tennessee right now. And so we either work enough or steal enough to get a bottle, normally a wine bottle, and we drink it and we pass out in doorways, abandoned cars, under overpasses, wherever we happen to be. And that's all we want to do with our life. Nobody can uh, tell us any different. We don't want anybody talking to us about not drinking and not living the way we're living. That's all we want to do. But well, we got to leave Memphis, Tennessee. We're in, the, we're in this drunk tank this morning <clears throat> for a public drunk. That's all we're in here for. It's a $5 fine. And we'll be out Monday morning, and we're going to move on because they've got really tough. They've taken us to jail way too much just for living on the streets and being public drunk. I said, well, where will y'all go? Obviously, if they lived on the streets, they didn't have vehicles. They said, well, we're going to Little Rock, Arkansas. It's 135 miles west of Memphis, Tennessee. And I said, well, how will you get there? They said, I will hitchhike. I said, how long will it take you? Oh, 10 days, two weeks, you know. I don't know what triggered my mind that morning after I talked to those guys. I went back down and sat on that seat that I'd slept on the night before. My life started flashing before my eyes like a VCR tape. I saw where I was as a child, all the hopes and ambitions and dreams. Then I saw how I was when I got in college and how I got through four years of Ole Miss totally untouched by a college education. 
And then I saw the years in pro football and how we'd reached the pinnacle of success. And I'd seen all the opportunities I'd had in my life. And, and I saw for once that I'd blown all those opportunities. And then for the first time in my life, I had the ability to put alcohol into my problems. The book calls it a moment of truth, a moment of clarity. And I think every alcoholic in this world, at least one time in his life, he has a shot at this moment of truth. Don't mean I knew what to do about it. But I knew that if I didn't change my life, I was doomed to live on the streets of whatever town I happened to be in, just like those guys I'd talked to. Because, you see, I had used up everything and everybody around me. My wife was the only person that I hadn't fully used up. I'd used up the New York Jet Organization. I'd used up all the friends I'd made in the state of Mississippi throughout the years and had gone to school with a lot of the guys that was in power then. I'd used up all my family. The last time I'd gotten in jail, my wife called my brothers and said, how about coming up here and getting him out of jail? And they said, no, why don't you get him out of jail this time? We got him out of jail last time. So I'd used up everybody. And I'm here to tell you this morning, every, I had to use up everybody and everything around me because as long as I had one person that would come to my beck and call or snapping my fingers, as long as one man, woman, dog, or cat would roll over for me, you'd have a different speaker this morning but I had to use them all up. And I was sitting on that jail cell and I didn't know what to do. I, I knew that I couldn't drink alcohol, but I knew the minute I got out, I drink alcohol like I always had done. I'd been in jail many times and every time I got out, I don't know what it is about jail, but it makes me dirty and thirsty. And I get, uh, you know, every time, the minute I get out of jail, I have to take a shower and put on some duds and go to the nearest bar and get drunk. That's where it always had worked for me. But I knew I couldn't drink alcohol anymore, but I knew I was going to drink alcohol. And that's a heck of a predicament to be in. The only thing I had left, and I got on my knees in that filthy jail cell, and I said those magic words, and it said, God, help me. It wasn't an elaborate prayer. I didn't know any elaborate prayers. Oh, I'd pray for us to win football games. I'd pray for God to get me out of my, this situation or that situation or whatever. Much as Sean was talking about last night, those foxhole jailhouse prayers, that's all I'd ever used in my life. You see, I was raised as a... Southern Baptist, when I was a kid, I was baptized at the age of 13 in, in a creek out behind a church down in Mississippi. But through the years, my dependency and my relationship with any God had waned. It was gone. Because my life wasn't such a matter that I didn't need any, any God in my life. And I didn't know what to expect that morning. I thought maybe God would zap him sail doors and let me walk out of there a free man, but that didn't happen. I had to get a bail bondsman like everybody else and got out of jail the next morning. And I went home and told my wife, I said, uh, you know, I, I think uh, alcohol has got me. I think I need some help. And she said those magic words, and she'd never been to an Al-Anon meeting, although she's got a black belt today. She said those magic words, Larry, if you need help, you'll find it. The telephone book's full of people that can help you, but I can't help you. And isn't that the truth? Bill Wilson was on his mission or his business out there in Akron, Ohio, and he was threatened to drink. He knew if he didn't talk to somebody, he was going to drink. And he finally ran down Dr. Bob Smith through a series of events. And he talked to Dr. Bob, and he, he didn't drink. And then Dr. Bob finally got sober. So Alcoholic Anonymous was formed when one drunk shared with another drunk. And that's all Alcoholic Anonymous was when it was started. And that's all Alcoholic Anonymous is today, one drunk sharing with another drunk and thank God it's there for everybody thank God that's what we need so my wife couldn't help me because she wasn't an alcoholic 
And she said those words, if you, if you need help, you'll find it. Phone book's full of people can help you, but I can't help you. And then my mind played a trick on me. I used to have this good lady friend that was an AA down in uh, Louisiana, Eileen, and she passed away. But she said that's just one of them God things. Because you see, my, t- my mind told me a telephone number of a detox jitter joint place 75 miles west of, Ar- of uh, Memphis, Tennessee in Arkansas, and I'd never been there in my life. But evidently it had been on TV, and I don't know what y'all do if they're talking about getting sober on TV and you, you're thinking about drinking. You dang sure don't watch that getting sober stuff, so I'd always fast forward to another station. But I knew that telephone number of that detox place just as well as I knew my name that Monday morning. And I called that number, and I got a recovering alcoholic on the other end of the phone. He said, if you'll hang on at 2.30 this afternoon, I'll be in your living room, and I'll bring another recovering alcoholic with me. And I hung on to 2.30 that afternoon, and I didn't drink. And they got there, and just in a short period of time, they pissed me off. <laughs> they started telling me about how they drank. I didn't care how they drank. I, I really figured in my mind I could drink them both under the table. And then all at once, after they told me a lot about their drinking, they told me how they stay sober. Somewhere in the back of my mind, it clicked to the fact that I knew about drinking, and they knew about drinking. They, but they knew about staying sober, and I didn't have a clue about not drinking and staying sober. So I was attracted to those people. So I packed my little ditty bag and I went back over to Arkansas to, 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 to the treatment place with them. And come to find out, I didn't know anything about it, didn't know anything about Alcoholic Anonymous, didn't know anything about any treatment place or any detox place or anything else. Come to find out this was a detox place, had a 14-day detox program, and other than that, we read and studied the book, the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous. We listened to big book study tapes. We, Joe and Charlie, I'm sure you all have heard of those. We studied those. We listened to those. And uh, we read the book. And that's all we did. And I'm here to tell you all this morning, there was one big black gentleman over there, and he got the same name I do, named Larry G., that was working over there that saved my life. Because, you see, he told me the truth. You know, so many times newcomers come to Alcoholic Anonymous, and we pat them on the head, and we say, oh, come on, everything's going to be all right. Everything ain't, may not be all right. If they drink... If, if they drink, it's certainly not going to be all right. If they don't drink, they got a shot at things being all right. But he didn't do that to me. He said, Larry, here's what happened to me. He said, four things that I know I have to do. He said, I have to read and study the big book of Alcoholic Anonymous because it's a planned program of recovery. It's a textbook. There's a big difference between a textbook and a novel. I love to read novels. Once I read a novel, I don't ever have to read it again. I know the story. But a textbook has to be studied. And I don't know why here in Alcoholic Anonymous we turn to chapter 5 and say, read how it works. If you hadn't read the first four chapters, including the doctor's opinion, I doubt if you'll ever know how it works. Because you can go to a math class. You can go to a math class and the teacher says, today we're going to do long division. If you hadn't had multiplication and adding and subtraction, there were long divisions out the window, I can tell you. But that we do it here at Alcoholic Anonymous. But he told me I was going to have to read and study the textbook of Alcoholic Anonymous. And he told me I was going to have to get involved in my own recovery. He pointed out to me that I didn't just go in a bar and watch people drink. I didn't buy a bottle and put it up on the shelf. I got involved in my drinking, so I'm going to have to get involved in my own recovery. And then he told me I was going to have to get a sponsor. And then he told me I was going to have to not drink. And I said, well, I thought I kind of figured that out for myself. You know, if you want to stay sober, you're probably not going to drink. And then when I got sober and went back to Memphis, Tennessee, I found my sobriety in a group of, uh, I guess we got 
political correct terms for them today instead of old-timers, but I love the term old-timers, so I call them old-timers. Because you see, when I walked in their meeting, they all knew me. They knew how to treat me. They told me, they said, what you need to do, son, is uh, you sit down over there, and uh, we're going to make you our group football expert. <laughs> and when we get ready to talk about football, we'll call on you. <laughs> <laughs> Rocky, I went to that meeting about five years. They ain't never got ready to talk about football. <laughs> so I never did get called on. But there again, those people told me the truth. My life since I stopped drinking. Now, I got eight grandkids. My wife and I have eight grandkids. I have a relationship with Peggy today. After two years of being sober, I had to go to Peggy and say, and my wife and say, Honey, I, I ain't been any better husband for these two years than I was when I was drinking. I've overdosed on AA. I've gone to all these meetings. I've gotten involved in service work. I've gotten involved in the Bluff City Convention there in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm doing all this stuff for AA, and I've forgotten about you. So I'll make a pledge from this day forward. If you want to have a relationship, as long as we're both willing to work on it, we'll work on that basis. The day that you don't want to work on a relationship or I don't want to work on a relationship between the two of us, we need to call it off. And I want to tell you all, the last uh, 12 years, I've had a relationship with a female for the very first time in my life. Because, you see, I always had that other thing about them females, all that sex thing, and I took, I took hostages, you know. If you wanted to go with me and do the way I was doing, okay. If you didn't, you could hit the road because it didn't really matter to me. I had to do my thing. But this lady and I have gotten to be really good friends. She knows everything about me. We don't have any secrets now. Well, we got some secrets. You might call them secrets that happened prior to me getting together with her in 1985. I got some stuff that she don't need to know about, but <clears throat> anything from 1985 forward is fair game. She knows a lot about me. You know, secrets will get you drunk. My sponsor, in his wisdom, my sponsor's got 27 years today. He had 15 years when, I, when he started sponsoring me. I mean, uh, 13 years when he started sponsoring me. And in his wisdom... He made me write that fourth step. You know, they kept on telling me at meetings, you've got to do the fourth and fifth step. And I said, look, man, i got a Super Bowl ring. They said, no, no. <laughs> fourth and fifth step. And in his wisdom on that piece of paper, you see, i got a brother who's two years younger than I am, and uh, he was born club-footed. And I don't, I don't mean a big foot. I mean when his was born, his foot was turned completely around. His toes were turned around where his heel should have been, and... He didn't have an Achilles tendon. Through a series of operations, they broke his foot and turned it around, turned it around, turned it around. And uh, he even got to where after he got his leg out of the cast, even though one leg is a little smaller than the other, he played high school sports. And in my glory years at Ole Miss, when I was up there playing college football, you know, back in those days, they had almost unlimited scholarships. And I demanded that they give my brother a scholarship to come up and play baseball because he was a good high school baseball player. And they gave him a scholarship, but he didn't get the kind of scholarship I had. He didn't have the free ride with the books and the, everything paid for and the food and every, uh, housing and everything. He had to live behind a gymnasium. He worked in the cafeteria. He had to scrounge around to try to get his book. Matter of fact, he, I think he and I stole most of his books for him, but we'll make those amends when somebody reminds me about him. <laughs> but uh, he got a good education. He got to be a CPA. And sure enough, when my finances got as bad as they always get when you're an alcoholic the way I was, and you ain't got nothing, you go to him with some kind of scheme, and you get most of his money put in there with a little bit of your money, and sure enough, we lost that. And sure enough, when I got sober, I'd written down on that piece of paper those details of that, those, that event. And my brother, my sponsor asked me, what are you going to do about your brother? 
And, you know, in my mind, I had it put in there where I'd gotten his college education for him, so I didn't owe him anything. And my, and my sponsor pointed out in his wisdom, he pointed out to me, he said, you know, there's two type of men's that the book talks about. The book talks about complete amends. Complete amends is if you owe a man $100, you don't, call, you don't pay him $90 and call it slick. It says complete. And for your peace of mind, you're going to have to pay him everything you owe him. And then there's uh, direct amends, face-to-face, wherever possible. That's what direct amends means. And he said, you're going to have to do those amends to your brother. Just because you helped him get his college education, you, need, you owed him that by being his brother. You don't, he, you, you've got to make a financial restitution to him. Because you put it down on that piece of paper, and I know about it as a sponsor, and I know it's bothering you. And he told me what to say, and he sent me down to visit my brother and make, and make arrangements to pay him that money. And I paid him that money. And you know, today when we had family reunions, I can look my brother in the eye. And that's what it's all about. You know, all I ever wanted in my life was to be able to walk down whatever streets or whatever town I happened to be in and look everybody in the eyes as I walked around. And I didn't have that until I called Canales. You people in these rooms like this gave me that. You see, this uh, counselor over there at the uh, detox place I went through told me one other thing. And we read it this morning out of Chapter 3, where it says that uh, we've got to surrender to our innermost self that we're alcoholics. That's the first step in recovery. And he told me I might have to surrender to the fact that I couldn't drink alcohol. And I said, man, I don't know nothing about surrender. You see, I was raised by a family down in Mississippi that always taught us we studied hard enough, sacrificed enough, and uh, worked at it hard enough we could be anything we wanted to be. And I didn't think I had ever surrendered to anything or anybody. So I didn't know anything about surrender. And he told me, the counselor told me, he said, you're going to have to probably compare it to something that happened in your life. And I didn't think I'd ever surrendered. You know, we'd leave that football field as Rocky knows on Sunday afternoon, and we'd look up at the school board, and it'd be 54 to 10, and we'd be done lost. And we'd go in the locker room, and we'd say, well, hell, we just run out of time today. <laughs> if we hadn't run out of time, it'd been 100 to 10, you know. But we couldn't surrender because we had to play the next week. So I didn't know anything about surrender. And I did a lot of thought and a lot of uh, research about, about, being, about surrendering. And finally came down to the point where I realized there was one time in my life that I had surrendered. The Miami Dolphins had this fullback named Larry Zonka. His number on his jersey was number 39. It's tattooed on my chest. If you don't believe it, I'll show it to you. They had him in a program of 235 pounds. I know his right leg weighed 235 pounds. I don't know what his total body weight was. <clears throat> but I was a linebacker at about 200 pounds, and he was a fullback at 235. And every time he got the ball, I was supposed to tackle him. And every time I tackled him, he ran over me and hurt me. It's just that simple. Finally, in 1971, went to an all-star game in Houston, Texas. And we were playing for the East squad, and we were going to work out all week and then play the West squad in the all-star game the following Sunday. And Leia Zonka was on the East team, being from Miami. And uh, they put us in a room together. We got to be roommates for a week. And boy, we drank and played cards and chased women and didn't catch none of them women. We chased them. And finally, at the end of the week, I came to the conclusion he was just a hell of a good guy, just a good, tough football player. And he wanted our wives to get to be friends, so he, he flew his wife out there to the, to the game on Sunday. And I flew my wife and kids out there, and we got them tickets, and they sat together in the stands, and they got to be friends. The very next year, we're playing the Dolphins down in the Orange Bowl in September, their home field. Bob Grease is a quarterback. He goes back to pass. Berlin Biggs, our big, deep, tall defensive end on the right side, is in there on top of him, got his hands up high. Berlin was 6'7". They call it throwing out of a well because Grease is little and has to throw it up over his outstretched hands. 
Zonka's come around on a little circle pattern over on my side, running down the field right at me. And Grease is trying to get him the ball. He throws it up over his head, and Zonka's running down the field and looking back over his head, trying to catch that football. And I got me a 15-yard running start, and I'm going to tattoo his ass. <laughs> it's going to be payback for all them times he ever ran over me and hurt me because I got him totally defenseless, and I'm running right at him as hard as I can go, and he don't even know I'm coming. I got there just as the ball got, just as the ball touched his fingers, I hit him right there with that helmet as hard as I've ever hit a human being in my life. Ball fell down over here, an incomplete pass, and I fell down on that ground. Zonka fell down on that ground to pile up. And, you know, I want to tell you all, I was hurting from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I had given my very best shot. And normally when you catch somebody defenseless like that and you hit them that hard, the team has to come get them on a stretcher. So I kind of peeped up to see where that stretcher was coming from, and I didn't see no stretcher. And I felt a movement that pile up there by me, and I heard this voice say, Larry, how's your wife and family? <laughs> I surrendered to Larry Zonka right then. If he came in that back door right there this morning, I'd make y'all a new door right over here. Because I have stayed surrendered. But isn't that the way it is with alcohol? How many of us has ever beat... I mean, ever, ever hurt alcohol? We can't hurt alcohol. Alcohol, every time we fool with alcohol, we're the people that gets hurt. So my book tells me that the only answer for alcoholics of our nature is total abstinence. There was a man down in my area that I, when I got sober that meant all the, everything in the world to me because he's a guy named Franklin Williams. He's now gone on to the big meeting. He knew the big book about as well as anybody I've ever, ever been around. Mr. Franklin was my... Not sponsor. I had a sponsor. Mr. Franklin was probably my spiritual giant because he was one of these old-timers. He died. If he'd lived just a few more months, he'd had 40 years continuous sobriety. And he took me under his wing. And Mr. Franklin was one of the best friends I ever had. And last time I saw Mr. Franklin before he died, I went to the hospital. and He had low blood pressure, and he couldn't raise his head because he got dizzy. And he pulled my ear down there by his, by his lips, and he said, Son, don't you ever forget where you came from. And don't you ever forget where your help comes from. And that's the reason I, I'm so grateful to be in Las Vegas this morning. Because I don't want to forget where I came from, and I don't want to forget where my help comes from. Because my help comes from, through God, comes from all you people. But Mr. Franklin always closed his talk with a football story. And I tried to memorize it after Mr. Franklin passed away. I tried to memorize this story, and I'd, I had a bunch of his tapes. I'd listen, I'd write a few sentences, and I'd run that tape back, you know. Never could get it done. In 1994, after I got my credit all cleaned up, I owed a lot of people when I got sober, a lot of money, IRS, everybody else. And uh, after I got it all cleaned up and got my credit established back, I, we wanted to buy a house and move out of, out of Memphis, Tennessee. We wanted to move down the edge of Mississippi because I'm a Mississippian. And uh, so I, I applied for and got credit, bought a house, and I moved me. I, I, I'm a manufacturer's rep today, too. I, I got some things to sell, <laughs> and uh, so I had to have an office. So I got an office down at the edge of Mississippi. And I went in there, and I, I, I leased this office from a friend of mine, and uh, I paid my rent and paid my rent every month on time. And, and I looked at his office. I went in his office and paid my rent. And finally, one time I went in there and paid my rent, I looked up on the wall, and up there on the wall was a plaque called the Rules of the Game. And it was exactly what Mr. Franklin Williams had always closed his AA talks with. And I want to share that with y'all this morning in closing. Because, you see, I believe 
And it's my God talking to me. And he says, I'm giving you the ball, son, and I'm naming you the quarterback for your team in the game of life. Now, I'm your coach, so I'm going to give it to you straight. There's only one schedule to play. It lasts all your life, but it consists of only one game. As long with no timeouts and no substitutions, you play the whole game all your life. Now, you'll have a great backfield. Now, you're calling the signals. You're the quarterback. But the other three fellows in the backfield with you have great reputations. They're named Faith, Hope, and Charity. You'll work behind a truly powerful line. In the end, it consists of honesty, loyalty, devotion to duty, self-respect, sturdy cleanliness, good behavior, and courage. Now, the goalpost is the gates of heaven. God is the referee and sole official. He makes all the rules. There is no appeal from them. There are ten additional rules. You'll know them as the Ten Commandments, and you'll play them strictly in accordance with your own spiritual experience. There's also one important ground rule. It is, as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. Now here's the ball. It's your immortal soul. Hold on to it. Now, son, get in there and play ball. God bless all of you, and I love you.